But it's a fantastic pleasure to, to be here in Hoyek. I, I understand we've arrived in the, in the middle of the summer festival. I hope that the Scottish Cabinet can add to the festivities. And the principle, as David rightly says, behind having the, the Cabinet in Hoyek, it's a very simple one. Uh, the, the Scottish Cabinet, like the Scottish Parliament, is a, a Cabinet not just for Edinburgh, but for all of Scotland. And the, the summer programme of Cabinet meetings, we've been to the Shetlands, uh, we're uh, here in Hoyk today. Next week we go to Campbelltown and then to Fraserburgh in the north-east of Scotland. So we're going north, south, west and east to demonstrate this is a cabinet for all of Scotland. Uh, now yesterday I, uh, here in Hoyk I announced uh, new support for all-weather tennis courts at the Bill McLaren Park. And that's one of uh, 40 announcements that was made yesterday uh, which are about the legacy from the, the 2014 Commonwealth Games, one of the great advantages uh, of having a, a position where the major facilities in Glasgow are either completed or all but complete. Mind you, I had the heebie-jeebies when the Hydro Stadium caught fire a few weeks ago, but luckily <laughs> there was no great damage done. But one of the great advantages from that position is it allows us to concentrate on the legacy effect. And, of course, the legacy effect is about community legacy, <laughs> the length and breadth of Scotland, and that means reinforcing the infrastructure of sport facilities across Scotland, like the announcement uh, in the Bill McLaren uh, Park yesterday. Uh, I visited Barry Knitwear, one of the many world-class uh, textile companies here in the south of Scotland, and this afternoon Mr Swinney will host a, a round table uh, with the companies to see how best we can promote the industry and the borders and uh, across the the rest of Scotland. This is not the first time I've been to this high school, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, a couple of years back when I opened the, the new campus for the Borders College across the road, I, I walked in in my young niece's art class in this very school, which gave a whole new meaning to still life as the expressions <laughs> of the, the art teacher and, uh, and the pupils were something to, to behold. Uh, and last night at the civic reception in the town hall, I met some of the student and teachers again from, uh, from this school. Uh, and therefore, ladies and gentlemen, it was easy to see, seeing that enthusiasm, why uh, this school celebrated such a fantastic set of examination results just two weeks ago. 93% of pupils gaining at least five standard grades, a pass rate of 75% for hires and 84% for advanced hires. Now, I make this point deliberately, ladies and gentlemen, because at some stage in Scottish society, we have to move away from the, the silly seasoned voices of the naysayers, from some elements of the press, usually the Daily Mail, who question the validity of such excellent results, reinforced by some politicians who should know a great deal better. The reason I mention it, make no mistake, the excellent, the fantastic results achieved by this school are a credit to the students, to the teachers who put in that work. And that work and excellence should be recognised by everybody when they produce such an excellent performance. <laughs> now, between us, the, the ministerial team are undertaking, I think, 25 public engagements, and everywhere we go we see the strength and, uh, and vitality of this community. We're also finding about the concerns of Hoyk and the borders and the engagements and in this public discussion, the main purpose for me and the rest of the Cabinet to listen to you uh, and therefore to respond to people's concerns, hopes, uh, ambition. But there's another reason, of course, why I bring the full array of the ministerial team here to Hoyk. When we get to the question-answer session, if it's, a, if it's a fairly simple question, then obviously I'll step forward and take first ministerial responsibility. 
If it's a more challenging and difficult question, then I've got the full array of ministers there to, to answer such, uh, such queries. But I'd like to make a few uh, initial remarks. Uh, the questions will range far and wide, of course, as they should. Uh, I'm going to focus in my remarks on next year's referendum and the important decision, the most important decision that Scotland uh, will take for some 300 years. Uh, in doing that, I want to start with a bit of uh, local context. Next year, as you know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, sees, the five, uh, sees an anniversary, actually, of a very, very important battle uh, in Scotland. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about the 500th anniversary of the Battle of Horns Hole, uh, a great success uh, uh, for Hoek, uh, rather more uh, successful than uh, the previous year, which was something of a setback uh, at Flodden. Uh, but I say, let's look forward to Horns Hole, not backward to Flodden. <laughs> It was, after all, the Battle of Horns Hole that uh, gave uh, Hoyek its anthem, uh, Terabishi Teriodin. Uh, it has 12 verses, at least, I understand. I'm not going to sing all of them this afternoon. Indeed, I'm not going to sing any of them. <laughs> but I will just read just one of them. Peace be thy portion, Hoyek, forever. Then arts and commerce flourish ever. Down to the latest age they send it. Hoyek was ever independent. I do like that line. <laughs> It's a good reminder, of course, of Hoyt's distinctiveness. Your independence has lasted for centuries. It doesn't really actually depend on the decisions of government. Now, relations with our, our colleagues to the south are rather better than they were in 1514, and certainly better than they were in 1513. Uh, and at last night's reception in the town hall, we welcomed council representatives from Cumbria, Northumberland, the city of Carlisle. And together with the Scottish borders uh, and with Dumfries and Galloway, they will be part of a, a Borderlands initiative, which will see the councils working together to promote tourism, transport, and business links. Uh, the Scottish Government are supporting that initiative because it shows the sort of cooperation across the border that has been encouraged and initiated since devolution. And my submission is independence would allow us to do much more. Because establishing a, a strong growth pole here in Scotland it would change the centre of economic gravity, of economic prosperity across these islands and change it for the better, which will be of great benefit to Scotland, but also, in my submission, be of benefit to our colleagues in the north of England. And if you look at the Borderlands report, which was conducted and commissioned by the authorities in the north of England, where they look at Scottish autonomy and see the success that they believe increased Scottish autonomy will bring to Scotland, and they say, look, that has opportunities and potential difficulties for the north of England. Difficulties of Scotland become so successful it could grow and divert investment away from the north of England. But they also list the opportunities. And this initiative, this Borderlands initiative, is about seizing these opportunities, about how a growth pole and a successful economy in Scotland can actually benefit uh, our friends to the immediate south, who in many ways have been a hugely neglected area uh, of England. So it shows the cooperation that is possible in that context, and it's the theme of my speech this afternoon. Independence and interdependence, the links we seek to preserve, to strengthen, and those, of course, that we need to change. In my submission, Scotland is currently part of six unions. The union we want to become independent from, the one we need to change fundamentally, is the political and economic union that ties us to Westminster. We shouldn't have, we don't want we mustn't have decisions on our economy, our welfare, our foreign affairs 
made by a government we did not choose and do not support. I uh, am 58 years old, ladies and gentlemen. I know you're all thinking collectively, Disney, look at it. <laughs> but nonetheless, I am 58 years old, and for two-thirds of my life, two-thirds of my life, Scotland has been ruled from Westminster by governments we did not elect. In my submission, that's no longer democratically acceptable. But it's also the case that we as Scotland are members of five other unions. The Union of the Crowns, the Social Union between Scotland and England, the Defence Union through NATO, the Currency Union of the Pound, Sterling, and the European Union. Now, the first of those, the, the Social Union across these islands has never been determined by governments and will flourish because of the ties of culture, history, language, family, friendship that we have. The four other unions, the European Union, Defence Union, the Currency Union, the Union of the Crowns, are ones which the Scottish National Party would propose to maintain. Change, certainly. Improve, absolutely. But broadly, maintain. Now, I should say at this point, of course, it would be open to other parties to put forward different choices for the people of an independent Scotland and elections to an independent Scottish Parliament. That is exactly as it should be. The essence, the, the real point, the absolute point about independence is that the people of Scotland would be able to make these choices. Only with independence can we be the sort of country and make the choices that we want. But the Scottish National Party's view is that we could use the powers of independence to make the unions I've listed work more effectively for Scotland and for our neighbours. With the currency union, for example, we could keep the pound sterling, but we'll gain powers over taxation, over borrowing, over welfare, over economic regulation, and over the energy markets, which are so crucial to Scotland's future. The very essence of the key powers about the building blocks of an economically prosperous and socially just society, the prerequisites of a prosperous economy, the hallmarks of a responsible, mature nation. And then, like... Uh, 16 other independent nations throughout the Commonwealth, we will retain the monarchy. But the people of Scotland can have a new draft written constitution, and that written constitution is vital. It can underline the positive rights the people of Scotland will enjoy and also spell out essential freedoms, enshrining for all time the unshakable Scottish constitutional tradition that sovereignty lies with the people of the nation. We can still be members of the NATO Defence Union. Why? Because that's what our friends and neighbours want for Scotland and reflects our important position in the North Atlantic because NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation. And we can play our part in maintaining collective security. But we're not supplicants in this argument, as the No Campaign would tell us. We would be welcome and willing partners. And we can participate in that alliance without nuclear weapons in Scotland. 25 out of the 28 countries of NATO do not, not nuclear powers, and believe me, not one of them would wish to change that non-nuclear status. And we'll remain in my position and should remain part of the European Union, and that's the union I want to talk about this afternoon. It's of vital importance across the country, but particularly, perhaps, in this part of the country. The Common Agricultural Policy was worth more in monetary terms, about £50 million pounds, uh, to the borders over the last year. Uh, the old Tower Mill, just a, a few hundred yards away, is a good example of the previous benefits of European programme for rural areas. 
It has been transformed into an arts and business hub as a direct result of the Heart of Hoyt Regeneration Initiative, which was supported by European structural funds. And the Scottish Borders Brewery, further down Teviotdale, was one of the, the businesses, one of the many businesses which have benefited from European funding under the Rural Priorities Scheme. And although the, the balance of European funding across the continent is certainly moving to support Central European economies, where the economic challenges are greatest, there are still huge opportunities for businesses and communities in the south of Scotland. And that's why Scottish Borders Council just last month was considering how to ensure that it benefits from European Structured Investment Funds programme going forward. But the main benefits, the essential benefits of the European Union are not about funding streams. They're about peaceful cooperation between nations, free movement of people and free access to the European market. Yesterday, as I mentioned, I visited Barry Nitwear, employs more than 170 people in this town, a future which has been secured by the takeover of Chanel of Barry Knitwear. 80%, 80% of its exports, and it is an export-dominated company, go to the European Union countries. And Chanel chose to, to buy the company last year because they've been buying its products for more than a quarter of a century. Barry's survival and revived success exemplify how Scottish quality produce benefits from the European marketplace. But we also benefit, in my submission, from the human element to the European Union. Uh, today's Scots include approximately 160,000 workers and students who have chosen to come from Poland, Ireland, Holland, France and other countries of the European Union. They make a massive contribution to Scotland's culture, to Scotland's economy, to Scottish society. Their presence is an important reminder of why our future lies within Europe. And that future will be strengthened by independence. Now, some people argue that uh, an independent Scotland would not have a, a loud enough voice in European negotiations. And that, if you think about it, ladies and gentlemen, is an essential fallacy. Because if you think about it, where Scotland's interests are the same as the interests of England or the government in London, then, of course, we lose nothing. But it also mistakes the view that uh, smaller countries can't influence successfully negotiations in the European Union. Both assumptions are wrong. Because where our interests converge, we lose nothing. Where our interests diverge, and there have been significant issues of recent divergence, then the Scottish voice currently gets totally quietened within European negotiations. For example, we know that, uh, and now we know absolutely, because we have the chapter and verse, that when uh, this country joined the common market as it was then in the 1970s, Scottish fishing jobs were absolutely sidelined. Over the summer, the then uh, UK's fishing negotiator, David, now Lord Hanney, has admitted, actually admitted publicly this summer, that Scottish fisheries were of less importance to the negotiators than New Zealand dairy products or Commonwealth sugar. Or as a, a civil service memo of the time put it, a memo which wasn't released, ladies and gentlemen, until 2003, quote, in light of Britain's wider European interests, they, that's the Scottish fishermen, are expendable. I'll just read that again so as we can get the full import of the people who negotiate for Scotland at the present moment. In light of Britain's wider European interests, they, the Scottish fishermen, are expendable. And that different sense of priorities, which has marked many key negotiations in the European Union, continues today. 
Let's take negotiations very recently, right up to date, on the common agricultural policy. Under independence, if Scotland had been an independent nation in that negotiation, we would have benefited from a rule that was drawn up by all of the countries that by 2019, no member state would receive less than €196 per hectare, approximately in direct payments to uh, uh, farmers and to the rural economy. That would have resulted, compared to the settlement that was reached for Scotland and the UK, in increased payments to our rural economy, to our farmers, which have been worth £850 million over the next six years. Scotland also has the lowest per hectare rate of support for rural development anywhere in the European Union. Ireland uh, receives almost as much rural development support funding as the whole of the United Kingdom, £1.7 billion against slightly under £2 billion, despite the fact that Ireland has about a quarter of the UK's agricultural land. And that, these facts, that inability to negotiate our own position with the European context costs Scotland dear. It directly affects the south of Scotland. Rural businesses, farmers here get less support because of the attitude and decision made by successive UK governments. These decisions, why, are they, why do they make decisions like that? Well, they make decisions like that because the rural economy in the UK economy is a much smaller part of the total than it is for the Scottish economy. Scotland has more rural areas, has more hectares, has more farming as a proportion of its economy for exactly the same reason that the fishermen's interests were regarded as expendable all these years ago, because fishing is ten times as important to the Scottish economy as it is to the UK economy as a whole. So without independence, Scotland's influence in Europe could diminish further. By 2017, the prospectus date of a UK referendum, our voice might not just be sidelined, it could be silenced forever. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't actually believe for one single minute that David Cameron actually wants the United Kingdom to leave the European Union. But what I would submit, he's in danger of playing a game of party management that's getting out of hand. There's now a very real risk through lack of leadership on his part that could result in the UK sleepwalking to the European Union exit door. He's made a decision to hold an in-out referendum on EU membership, and it was driven by three political considerations. And interestingly enough, Scotland didn't feature in any of these considerations. One was that they need to counter the political threat of UKIP in England. Secondly, the internal threat from his own Eurosceptic backbenchers had to be dealt with. And thirdly, the Labour leadership were to be embarrassed by their refusal to make a similar referendum offer. All of these considerations are going awry. The best-laid schemes of mice and David Cameron, Afghan Aglae. In England, UKIP is now entrenched on the Tory party's flank. The Eurosceptics within the Tory party have been emboldened. Two senior members of the UK cabinet expressing support for European Union withdrawal. And senior figures within the Labour party are now openly calling for an early referendum. The prospect is that Scotland could once again pay a heavy price because of Westminster decisions that are not based on the interests of our people, our families, our communities. Polling suggests that more than half of Scots want to stay in the European Union compared with uh, a third who would express a preference for leaving. That contrasts totally with recent polling in England, which suggested a majority of people expressing opinion in favour of the European Union of leaving the European Union. Now, I don't want that to happen 
When Scotland's independent, I don't want the rest of the UK. I want it to stay in the European Union. But even if the rest of the UK in that scenario were to leave, an independent Scotland's continued EU membership would and should be maintained. However, if we don't become independent, we'll have absolutely no control over what happens in that European context. The European Union provides a, a very real example, a huge example, of how important it is to make decisions about Scotland be taken by the people who care most about Scotland, that's the people who live and work in this country. The, European, the UK government, uh, the government in London, has suggested that uncertainty about European Union membership is being caused by the prospect of Scottish independence. My submission is the uncertainty comes from remaining as part of the United Kingdom. But the claims, of course, from the UK government are part of a pattern in this referendum campaign. This is a referendum campaign where the no campaign self-describes itself as Project Fear. That is their description, reported in the press, of themselves. They're engaged, as they put it, in Project Fear, a self-description of the no campaign. If we remember, they argued that the UK's AAA status was crucial to Scotland's economic prospects, until, of course, the UK itself lost its AAA status. Uh, the Ministry of Defence just a few weeks ago mused that they would annex the nuclear base at Faz Lane uh, under Westminster if Scotland had the temerity to vote for independence. I should say that scare story emanating from the Ministry of Defence lasted about two hours uh, before Downing Street rushed out a denial. Then they said that the UK embassies would no longer promote whisky. I suspect, however, ladies and gentlemen, our multi-billion pound whisky industry can probably get by without the promotion of the UK embassies. Incidentally, UK embassies actually charge for whisky promotion events. <laughs> and then they claimed that mobile phone charges would go up in an independent Scotland. That was actually on the very day that the European Commission set about abolishing roaming charges across the European continent. Another benefit, incidentally, of the European Union. They've raised fears about border controls, despite the fact that Ireland, the Isle of Man, the Channel Islands, and the Isle of Man and the Channel Islands are not even in the EU, for that matter. They all share a common travel area and have done with the UK for decades. So in that context, it's hardly surprising that as part of Project Fear, that catalogue of scaremongering stories, they have tried to spread uncertainty about Scotland's EU membership. And it's also not surprising that the reality is very different. The Scottish Government has always recognised that continued membership of the EU will require negotiations with other member states and EU institutions. That's only right and proper. But these negotiations will be completed within the 18-month period between a yes vote next September and the achievement of independence in March 2016. And why am I so confident about that? Well, you don't even have to ask the Scottish Government for that view. Professor James Crawford, one of the, the most estimable international lawyers uh, and the UK government's own chosen legal expert on these matters told the Radio 4 Today programme on the 11th of February this year that that timescale, that 18-month timescale, was, to quote the professor, realistic. The same day that he'd written a UK government report uh, saying about Scotland's constitutional position. So if the professor chosen by the UK government to opine on these matters recognise that that is a realistic timescale, then who are we to gainsay such professional advice? And all that uh, Professor Crawford is realising, as any sensible person would, is that oil-rich, energy-rich, talent-rich, resource-rich Scotland would be a welcome member of the European family of nations. 
What independence would do is safeguard Scotland's future, allow us to promote the right type of change for Scotland and for Europe. Ladies and gentlemen, there are clearly areas where the European Union has to change. The current level of youth unemployment across Europe, 23%, is unsustainable. But the UK is currently arguing against a European target for youth employment. The Scottish Government supports one as part of our belief that the European Union has put greater emphasis on promoting jobs and recovery. And following on the substantial success of the Scottish Government initiatives on youth employment, which give us one of the lowest rates of youth unemployment in the European continent. And aside there from that economic challenge, there's a great challenge of regulation. It's vital that the burden of regulation on business is proportionate. It's a democratic challenge. The need to reconsider the balance of decisions made by Europe on the one hand and member states on the other. And the need to meet these economic, regulatory, democratic challenges is understood, and it is well understood in capital cities across the European Union, Helsinki, Berlin, Paris and Amsterdam. Some of it is understood in London. What's not understood is you can't achieve reforms by issuing threats to leave. So an independent Scotland should, in my view, stand up for reforms that are in our national interest. But we'll do so by building alliances. We could work with the rest of the UK where we agree, but also work with others to achieve change. Now, as a devolved nation, we've already got a pretty good record of promoting our own and wider European interests. And we've made a, a leading contribution to the development of key European structural fund. We're making a, a substantial role in uh, moves towards a more integrated energy market across Europe. We're playing an important role in the European Union's move to boost economic growth, to tackle global warming, to promote a healthier and fairer society. But we can achieve a lot more as a full member. At present, we're a constituent part of a larger state where our interests can and often have been ignored. An independent Scotland would take its seat at the top table alongside 20 other member states, 12 of which are either about the same size or smaller than Scotland. These countries, as I've said, often wield great influence. In the European Union, an organisation where negotiation trumps ultimatum, where the strength of ideas can matter more than the size of population. Ireland has just finished its presidency of the European Union. It's been a major success. It's concluded negotiations on European finances up to 2020. It handed over the presidency to Lithuania, which is a population of 3 million people. Last year, Denmark, which is the same size as Scotland, used its presidency of the Council to negotiate long-awaited, long-overdue reforms to the common fisheries policy. And Scotland has been able to work closely with Denmark and Ireland in terms of these reforms. But consider this, ladies and gentlemen. Scotland has the longest sea border of any nation in the European Union, yet we've had less formal say over fisheries policy than landlocked countries such as Austria and Slovakia. My belief is that not being at that top table has harmed our interests for decades. Within the UK, we are just occasionally consulted. With independence, we can contribute as equals. In conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to say this. Scotland is a nation which has made a, a huge contribution to the world. I think we've got a huge amount to offer in the future. Uh, I talked at the start of my remarks about the line from your anthem, Hoyt was ever independent. But as you all know, and as all of us have seen over the last two days, Hoyt's independence, its civic pride, has never stopped it from forging links far and wide, working with local authorities in Scotland and England, exporting goods around the world, enjoying ties of family and friendship across these islands and across the globe. 
The six unions I've spoken about today exemplify the notion of independence and interdependence, the ties that we hope to maintain and strengthen and the things we seek to be independent from. By choosing independence from the political and economic union, we can ensure that the other areas of union, the social union, the union of the crowns, the currency union, the defence union, the European union, continue. Independence allows us to embrace and make the most of our interdependence, playing a full part on the world stage, working with our fellow nations, but as an equal partner. As a result, that independence would be good for Hoyk, good for the borders, and good for Scotland. Thank you very much.